say a prayer with me before we look at the scripture this morning? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's our privilege every Sunday for nine years now to be worshiping in this school. And so we continue to lift the school up to you. We know there's only a couple weeks left of students being here. We pray for peace. We pray for perseverance and endurance to finish the school year well. We pray for the administrators. We pray for the teachers and the kids. God, that you would help them to have a good last couple of weeks here and to be encouraged about their future. And we pray that the summer will be restful for the teachers and the staff as they take a break. Uh, we count it a privilege to be here. We know that whenever we're gathered together, you are here with us. And so we acknowledge that you are our leader and our teacher, Jesus, and invite you to speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're in the middle of a conversation at Mill City Church called Fighting for Unity. And if you're just joining us, I really want to encourage you to go back online and listen to the last couple sermons. It's a really important conversation we're having as a church. It's essential. We think that Mill City Church learn to build up a muscle for preserving its unity, for fighting for its unity in the midst of lots of different cultural challenges and disagreements that we're all living in the midst of every day. And so here's what we've been saying about unity in the church in the last couple of weeks. It'll be on the screen here for you. First of all, it's normal for people to disagree. It's normal for people to disagree. It's okay if we disagree about some things. That's not a crisis. How we disagree is really important. How we disagree is really important for our relationships with each other, and it's also important for how people outside of our church perceive us. And so the way in which we go about disagreeing is critical. Relational trust is the bond that's holding us together in the midst of these disagreements. If we don't trust each other, then we're just trying to make some statements to prove we're right without really being concerned about the lives of the people with whom we're having a conversation. And so relational trust is really our, our glue, our starting place. Unity is not the same thing as uniformity. And this is really important to understand. That being united, being in unity with each other doesn't mean we're all the same. It's really clear in scripture that the kingdom of God is diverse. People come from every language, every culture, every tribe, every tongue. That's the way the scripture talks about it. So we're not all going to be the same, ever. But we are going to be united through our faith in Jesus Christ. And finally, unity is not a negotiable thing. It's not like some churches are good at unity and others aren't. Well, that is true, but that's not how it should be. Unity is not something that is kind of an option that we can pick. It is essential to what it means to be the church. And that's why we've been focusing so much attention on it here the last few weeks. So uh, we want to learn how to fight for our unity as a church, even though we know we're not going to agree on everything all the time. And we're hopeful that this teaching series will help build that muscle. So here's the text that I chose for today. Try to help us think about how we go about fighting for unity together. It's from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. And this is a passage that our covenant members have spent a lot of time in and our covenant member meetings for over a year. We just listen to this text over and over and over again to try to let it sink into who we are as a people. Here's what Paul writes. He says, As a prisoner for the Lord, he is currently a prisoner as he's writing this, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble. Be completely gentle. Be patient. 
bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. So this is the text we're going to use to guide our conversation this morning. I want to start with this first verse and unpack it a little bit. Paul says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Have any of you ever had someone say to you something like, You were made to fill in the blank. Or maybe you've said that to somebody else because you noticed something that they were clearly gifted at. You were made to be a teacher. You were made to be a musician. You were made to take care of people. You were made to play soccer. You were made to be a dad. You were made to be a coach. Have you ever had anyone recognize something in you and then call it out? It is so powerful when someone else looks and knows you and sees you and says, it's clear that you were created to do this. You have got to do it. And when you hear it and you know it's right, you have some kind of internal conversation like, yeah, that's right. That sounds right. That's who I am. I think I knew that, but now that you say that, it confirms it for me. It's very powerful when you discover something that you're made to do. And we sometimes use the word calling to describe that, right? We sometimes say, an artist is called to make art. Being a mom is a calling for some people. Working in finance or sales or medicine is a calling for some people. And discovering a calling will motivate people to work hard at allowing their gift to come out even if there's no other reason for them to do it. This is the most amazing things about, about artists from my perspective. This weekend is Art World, in case you're not aware, in Northeast Minneapolis. I think it's the largest art crawl in the nation. Tens of thousands of people show up in Northeast. All the galleries are open. If you wander through some of the galleries, here's some, something you will notice if you pay attention. Some of these artists are not people people. They're, they're, not, they're not inclined to make small talk and conversation. In fact, Art of World, I know for some of them, is the most painful weekend of the whole year. But they do it anyway because some of them make half or three quarters or all of their income by selling art during Art of World weekend. And it allows them to do what they love the whole rest of the year. But here's the point. Artists put hundreds and thousands of hours into making things that sometimes very few, if anyone, even sees. Sometimes musicians put hours, hundreds of hours, into lyrics that some other people barely hear when the song goes by. I'm so, I so love artists, partly because I don't consider myself a very good artist, to watch the dedication at which they pursue their calling, even if no one really cares, or it seems like no one really cares. And you know why they do that? If you ask them, we have lots of artists in this church. If you ask them, do you know why they do it? Because they can't do anything else. 
because if they didn't make art, they wouldn't be them. And so they're doing it because it's their calling, it's their passion, it's who God created them to be. They don't have a choice but to let it out. And I think that's so amazing. People pursue things they feel called to do, not because someone's paying them to do that, but because they are created to do it. And so when Paul says, live a life worthy of of the calling that you have received, he's trying to say something similar. He's saying, this is something you were created to do. You were chosen by God. Ellie was created in the image of God before any of us met her. She is designed specifically, uniquely. There's no other girl like Ellie, right? And God is saying to each and every one of us and to us as a collective, I have designed you and purposed you and given you a reason to be here. And if you don't embrace it, then you spend your whole life searching for some other lesser calling that doesn't allow you to be you. Paul, who's in prison because of his faith in Jesus Christ, is writing and begging these people, listen, here's the story. In chapters 1 to 3 in Ephesians, here's essentially what he's saying. You were chosen by God to be part of God's salvation project for the whole world, that the whole world will be put under the authority of Jesus Christ. That every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And every single person that God created has a role to play in bringing God's kingdom to earth. And if you embrace that calling, Paul says, then God's grace and God's generosity and God's guidance and God's presence and God's healing in Jesus Christ through the presence of the Holy Spirit will give you everything you need to do and be what you were created to be. He says, if you live a life worthy of the calling that you have received, then you will be these things. Here is what it says in verse 2. He says, you will be humble and gentle. You will be patient, and you will know how to bear with other people in love. Now, when I read those four things, I started to see them as a a way to measure my own progress in fighting for unity in the church and beyond. When people are in conflict with me or I have a disagreement, do they see me as humble? Do they see me as gentle? Do they see me as patient? Do they see me as bearing with other people in love? There's a bit of a report card there, right? And not just for me as an individual, but for you and for us as a church. So important what people see us doing, especially when we're having conflict as a church. Does the world outside of Mill City Church see Mill City as being humble and gentle and patient and bearing with each other in love? Is that our reputation? If we were to ask some people outside our church. Paul's saying, if you want to live into your calling and live a life worthy of the calling that God's given you, these things will be true of you. So that's helpful. It gives us a way to look and see, is this what, how we're living out our lives or not? And sometimes we are, and sometimes we're failing. 
But then he says, uh, and this is the verse I want to spend most of my time on. He says, make every effort. It is an imperative. Do everything you can possibly think of to maintain, to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Do everything you can think of to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, why would the people who he was writing to need to hear that? This is where we need to start if we want to understand this well. It's written to a group of Christians, some of them who formed a church at Ephesus, but this is a letter that was also read in a lot of other places. It wasn't just specific to one church. It's written to a group of church, uh, Christians who largely did not have a Jewish background, but they were joining a faith movement, a religious movement, that was rooted in Judaism. And these new churches that were forming, lots of times the Jewish people who were part of them were now in the minority when they were used to being in the majority. And so there were significant divisions that the church was facing, broadly speaking, because their, God was moving to try to help them see Essentially, you don't have to be Jewish to be a Christian. And for the Jewish people, this was very, very difficult because they had huge thousands of years values of tradition and ritual and ways of worshiping. And then you have all these Greco-Roman people who lived in a pluralistic society and valued tolerance and had some uh, uh, necessity to be aligned with the emperor. And there was in direct conflict with everything that the Jews had lived their life to be about. And so they had racial tension. That these people who were from different cultural backgrounds, different racial backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds, were not getting along. Does that sound familiar at all? They could not connect, and the Jewish people had to be convinced through some miraculous acts by the Holy Spirit that everyone was supposed to be included in the kingdom of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was hard for them, and it was understandably so. They had been oppressed, beaten down, put into exile, and um, treated poorly by the very people that God was bringing to Christ. So it was understandable that it was difficult for them. And the folks who were from the Greco-Roman background didn't understand all the weird things that they were doing, couldn't imagine having to get circumcised to join this group, and didn't, didn't want to do the things that they were requiring of them. And so these people were struggling with racial and ethnic divides in this young church. And Paul is writing to them and encouraging them to make every effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So let me just talk a little bit about the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, because it doesn't seem immediately obvious when I read it what that exactly means. And what I want to say, most importantly, about the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace is that Paul is not just giving them some technical advice on how to resolve differences. This isn't just a conflict resolution strategy or method. It is a distinctly Christian way to preserve and pursue unity. So if you leave with anything this morning, I want, I want you to hear me saying this. There is a distinctly Christian way to pursue unity in the world. And for us to really embrace our calling as Christian people who are part of the story that God's writing and telling us about in Christian and in, in, in Scripture, we have to pursue unity in a Christian way, which is distinct and different. And here, let me explain it to you. When Paul says you have to preserve or keep the unity of the Spirit 
it refers to something specific. It's saying in this context, what they were struggling with was that God had given access to God's spirit to people who are not Jewish. So the Jewish people were used to God living in a temple and them having the understanding of how to worship God properly. And people were sort of allowed on the fringe of that, but they didn't have primary access to God's presence. And now after Jesus' resurrection and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, all these people have access to God's presence. And in fact, at 70 years after uh, AD 70, the temple in Jerusalem is burned down to the ground. It doesn't even exist anymore. And so they're wrestling in their brains like, wait now, everyone, anybody who opens their life and their faith to Jesus Christ now has access to God when before you had to kind of go through all these different ways to get to God. And so when he says you're keeping and preserving the unity of the Spirit, he's saying you have got to be unified around this new access and openness that anybody has who is willing to put their faith in Jesus Christ. It's not based on racial lines or ethnic lines or religious history. It's based on a person's heart openness to Jesus Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so this is why I think we we said a couple weeks ago, and this is really critical. He's not saying unity is based on you all agreeing on the right doctrinal perspective. And I don't ever want you to hear me saying that doctrine isn't important. It's very important. But it is not the foundation of unity. Because you know what? You know how messed up a lot of these people's theology was? Do you know how many weird ideas they had about who God was and what Jesus had accomplished? I mean, they were just figuring it out. Hundreds of years were going to go by before people would even work out what the Trinity was. So they didn't have pure, perfect theology at this time that they could be united around even if they wanted to. And that's not what Paul's saying, and it's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, be united around your willingness to be open to God leading you, guiding you, forgiving you, changing you, teaching you. If you stay open as a person, and you know this is true in your life, when you're in a private moment, and you can say honestly, I am open, and and I honestly want to know who God is and what God wants for my life, you're in a vulnerable and different place than if you're trying to defend your position. He says, keep the unity of the Spirit by staying open. Unity is primarily a heart issue, not not an idea issue. We learn and we grow and we trust God to teach us and correct us Every one of us in the room is wrong about something about God right now. You think something about God that's wrong. I guarantee you. I'm sorry. And so do I. And the only hope we have is that if we stay open and say to God, you're God, I'm not. My life is going to be a pursuit of you in worship and learning and trying to do the things that you invite me into. And I pray that you help me to know you more as I, as I go and correct me where I need to be corrected. That's humility, right? That's gentleness. So when I come into conversation, I'm not trying to browbeat somebody into agreement with me. I'm just saying, hey, this is my best understanding for where I am right now. And you can disagree with me if you want to. I'm doing my best. This is what I understand. 
I think if we can honestly say that we all recognize our need for God's forgiveness in our lives, if we can honestly say that we believe through faith in Jesus Christ that we've been forgiven for our sins and we've entered into right relationship with God, if our hearts are open to be taught and shaped by the presence of God's Spirit in our lives, then we can experience the unity God has in mind for us as the church. It is our openness and access to God that unites us. Now let me say a little bit about the bond of peace. In Ephesians chapter 2, just a chapter before that, here's what it says about peace. Let me read it to you. It says, For he himself, referring to Jesus, for Jesus is our peace, who made the two groups, referring to the Jews and the Gentiles, different racial groups, He made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting it aside in his flesh, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two or the three or the four or the five, thus making peace. And in one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. So here's why pursuing unity can be a distinctly Christian practice. Because as Christians, we believe that the only peace that we can really hope to have is already been made possible by Jesus. I love the line in this text that says, Jesus is our peace. He has made peace in ways that we never can do. And I love the language of Jesus making one humanity out of two, out of two or three or four. That the argument in Ephesians is that Jesus is the Lord over everything. All people are under the authority of Christ. And so the peace that we believe in as Christians is not just agreement about some ideas. It's way bigger than that. It's unity around access to God and peace that we've found because Jesus has done something for us that we could never do for ourselves. Amen? I want to say that the peace of Jesus is a third way. We try to talk about a third way at Mill City because we think most of the time our binary options in conversations that we're having in the world aren't very good. And in the conversation about race, uh, teachers in the early first centuries of the church started to say that they called the church the third race because they didn't want to be pigeonholed into be calling Jew or Gentile. They just wanted to be called Christians. So people in the second century and the third century started to call Christianity the third race. I love that. There's a different way. There's a third way. We don't have to to accept the categories that people put in front of us. There's a distinctly Christian way to pursue God's presence in our lives and the peace that Jesus offers to the world. Jim Wallace has been writing for many decades on the issues of race in America. 
And I love his latest book's thesis, which essentially says, the political conversation about the racial problems in the U.S. gets it wrong on a number of counts. One is by denying that racism is a problem at all or ignoring racism altogether. And another one is treating the problem of racism as if it's just an education problem that people are just don't know and need to be educated. And if they were educated, they would behave differently. And Jim, as a Christian person, says those are both radically wrong. The problem is not education, it is sin. It's a heart problem. It's a problem that, that we have learned to treat people as less than human on some level, in some way, overtly or, or covertly, and that dehumanizes people in a way that doesn't honor their calling as people created in the image of God. And Jim says... Unless we repent, Christians have a unique opportunity to say the way to deal with racism in the 21st century isn't just education or trying to argue where racism is or isn't. It's repentance. It's admitting that in my heart somewhere I have sinned and I need God's forgiveness and healing so that I can see the world the way that God sees the world and I can hear someone else's perspective. In Ephesians 2, when it talks about the peace of Jesus, what it's saying is, not, not that God made peace between two groups, but that Jesus made peace between the groups and God, and therefore they could get along. Do you see the difference? He didn't say, here's how Jesus mediated the problems between the Jews and the Gentiles. He said he dealt with both of their sin issues by allowing them to have a right relationship with God, and when they had right relationship with God, they could be united in a different way. That's the distinctly Christian way to pursue unity. Let me invite the band to come back up. This little section of scripture that I read for you ends with a cadence that probably was something that they used to baptize people in the early church. So let me read it to you one more time. Verses four to six. Paul writes, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. One more time. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord Jesus, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. There is only one church in God's eyes, I'm convinced the people of God in lots of different expressions. There's the body of Christ where all of us have a role to play in the, in the mission of God in the world. There's only one hope that Jesus has defeated sin and death and offered us forgiveness. There's only one king, Jesus, under whom everything has been put. There's only one faith and one baptism and one God. And we as Christians have a really important role to play in the 21st century to not accept the categories of just tolerating ideas or acknowledging that people have differences or realizing that they're different perspectives. That's all true. It's not enough, though. It's not enough. Living next to people who you can tolerate is not God's vision of the kingdom. Being united in love through humility and gentleness and patience 
is God's vision of the kingdom. Let me introduce communion today. We're going to come forward, and you can take a piece of gluten-free bread and dip it in the juice. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you're welcome to participate in communion. You don't have to be a member of our church. But let me, let me suggest how when you come forward to the communion today, there's a unique opportunity to, to embrace what I'm saying. If you think about the way that Jesus made every effort to do what we're describing today, just let me narrate it for you and then we'll pray and you can come forward. Jesus was humble. Jesus didn't press himself or force people to accept him. He went where he was invited. He talked to the people who would listen to him. He walked away from those who didn't want to hear him. Jesus was gentle. Like we talked about earlier, he allowed the people who were on the margins, the kids, women, people who other folks had discarded, he, he gently embraced them and brought them into his presence. Jesus was so patient. I love the moments where he's just slightly less patient. Where he just goes, are you, are you kidding me? You still not understand this? But can you imagine how much patience it took to walk with people for years and try to help them see what the kingdom of God was like over and over and over again? And there's no better definition of bearing with people in love than the cross. To say that you love people in such a way that you're willing to suffer even though you're innocent, to try to provide opportunities for forgiveness for people who hate you and want to kill you. Jesus embraced the calling that the Father put on his life. He made every effort to listen to the Spirit and follow its leading, and Jesus became our peace through his death and resurrection. So when you come forward for communion today, and you take that bread and you dip it in the cup, I just want you to say to yourself, Jesus, I accept the peace that you've given to me. Help me be a peacemaker in the world. Help me be a unifier in the world. Here's the prayer. Jesus, I accept the peace that you've given to me through your death and resurrection. Help me be a peacemaker. Help me be a unifier. Let me pray. Jesus, it just feels like there's so much at stake in this conversation right now on this day uh, in the middle of May in 2017. God, this, this stuff really matters, that it's essential of the way we're living our lives every day with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with our family members. We desperately want to be people who reflect you well. We desperately want to be people who bring glory to your name by the way we live together. And so I pray that you give us uh, two things this morning. Give us your grace and your mercy in our lives that we come forward that we know that no matter what we've done, you will forgive us. And God, give us the courage to not just go along with conversations, to not just contribute to disunity or disharmony, but to pursue that third way through the unity of your spirit and the bond of the peace that you give us, Jesus. Make your name great through Mill City Church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.